Welcome to Revolve, where we explore big questions from all angles. Each season, we use one big question to dive into a topic with experts, showing how perspective matters in building thoughtful solutions. I'm Trip Williams. Season 2. What can we do to mitigate the effect of climate change for those who will be most affected by it? This season, we talk with experts to explore transforming industries like manufacturing and finance into environmental allies, and how we support communities impacted by climate change the most. Today, I'm excited to welcome Joe Purry, head of the Independent Evaluation Unit at the Green Climate Fund. The Green Climate Fund is the largest global fund dedicated to help fight climate change. Established by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 2010, GCF has collected over 17 billion in US dollars in funds to invest in adaptation and mitigation activities in developing countries. GCF uses public investment to stimulate private finance, unlocking the power of climate-friendly investment for low emission, climate-resilient development. To maximize impact, GCF seeks to catalyze funds, multiplying the effect of its initial financing by opening markets to new investments. And before joining GCF, Joe spent time working for the World Bank the UN, and at Columbia University. We are delighted to welcome Joe today to Revolve. Welcome, Joe. Thanks very much, Trip, for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to, uh, to have you join this season. You know, in this season, we're, we're digging into the question of how to slow climate change and support high-quality life on our planet. And I want to start by defining a key term, just to be sure everybody uh, starts from the same place. We, we use the term climate change and that carries different meanings for different people. If we can start just by telling us, Joe, what climate change means to you and your partners. Thanks, Trip. It's a great way to start a conversation, primarily because of all of the legends and all of the confusion that exists around climate change. I think the first thing that I want to talk about is what climate change means to us and primarily to the Green Climate Fund, but also how it translates into change um, or how it translates into impact for the man or the woman on the ground. So what climate change has essentially meant, and I think most listeners know this, at least in theory, is that the large trends in our climate are changing. But what does it mean for people on the ground? And not just people, but also entire systems, which include, um, which include biodiversity systems, which include environmental systems, and of course, every other physical and sociological system as well. And what it means is that because of the change that is being caused, which is mostly anthropocentric now as the science is established, which means it is being, being caused by human beings, the amount of uncertainty and therefore the risk that we are witnessing in our daily lives is changing, which then means that it becomes uh, more and more unlikely that we can plan ahead for infrastructure investments, for investments in our own selves, but also in the way we perceive life on earth generally. So just to give you one small example, I'm currently located in South Korea, as you may know. Um, last to last week, we were cycling across um, South Korea. Um, so my partner and I were cycling across South Korea. And um, September is meant to be a period which is uh, quite uh, calm. 
slightly cool in South Korea and um, across the peninsula. What we witnessed basically as we cycled across the 630 kilometers is that not only was there very, very hot weather, but we had two typhoons, one of which was a super typhoon, so Mesak as well as Haichan, that came onto the peninsula and caused a lot of uncertainty for people around us. There were causeways, entire roads that were flooded so people couldn't get across from one part of the country to the other. As you can imagine, it essentially just, just put a stop to almost all economic activity within the country. And not just in South Korea, but also in Japan. So basically this uncertainty causes a lot of risk, but it also causes a lot of unpredictability, which means that we have to change human systems, but also non-human systems to become far more resilient to the damages that changing and variable climatic systems may be causing for us. This is what climate change essentially means for us. As you're describing the breadth and the scale of the challenge, Joe, the, you know, one of the next question that comes up is, what can we possibly do? Um, and, and the Green Climate Fund is a really interesting organization. I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us sort of the perspective on why the GCF is needed, what distinguishes the GCF from other organizations that are looking to use capital and finance to make change. Just tell us a little bit about the work that you and team are doing. Yeah, thanks. So um, I think what is well recognized is that unlike most other problems in the world, uh, climate change is a global good problem, right? Which means that not only do we need to simultaneously come together to take action, to reduce the impacts of climate change, but also to try and stall it, um, it also means that unless all of us work together, each one of our actions by themselves might be too small. So it's mm. essentially to solve that coordination problem. Um, so it has to be simultaneous action, but also um, action that is um, by itself individually small, but hopefully will aggregate onto being very large if all of us take it, which essentially the Green Climate Fund uh, hopes to initiate, galvanize, and realize. Um, as, a, as all countries, all, almost all 198 countries have essentially come together to recognize that this is a problem, the Paris Agreement that was signed amongst countries, so that was 2015, but one of the lead up to the Paris Agreement was the idea that we have to, uh, that countries have to agree that action must be taken on both the um, adaptation side, that is adapting to changing climate and changing variability, but also on the mitigation side, that is all of us need to take action together to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. Um, the Green Climate Fund was set up. It is, like you said in your introduction, the largest climate fund um, in the world. Um, it has the mandate to essentially help all developing countries to help them transform their own development pathways in ways that are climate resilient and, um, and are um, low emissions pathways. So, and in ways that are transformative and are paradigm shifting. And this paradigm shifting word is really important. It's also mentioned in the, um, in the governing instrument of the Green Climate Fund. 
so that what the Green Climate Fund is essentially set up to do is not just undertake small investments, which of course are critical, but also investments that are going to be innovative and essentially are leap are helping humankind to leapfrog across different dimensions of development and innovations and inventions, and which is really important. The second thing that is really important um, to note also about the Green Climate Fund is that it emphasizes not just public investments, but is also working and has the mandate to work with the private sector to get it to recognize that climate change needs to, needs to be addressed by private investments as well. So it's not sufficient for us to address this question from the side of governments and public investments, but get the private sector involved in this journey as well. And I think both of those things along um, the fact that it's public and private, and second, the fact that it is the largest fund in the world, which has been set up with the common agreement of so many countries across the world. So there is almost a global agreement on this, um, basically means that the Green Climate Fund is possibly the only organization of its kind and in terms of mandate and size to be uh, set up for the climate problem. And you, you just referenced something I'd love to, to dig a little bit more into, Joe, the, the reference of public-private partnerships. Uh, and I'm, I'd love for you to share a little bit with us sort of the opportunity you see when public or government or, or public sector organizations partner with private or business institutions. Um, and when they come together, what, what is it that you get excited about with that partnership? And what are, yeah, what are the things that you see happen when, when those two forces come together versus when they operate independently? Okay, so um, thanks. I think the first thing that I do want to point out is that um, I'm a bit careful about using the word public-private partnerships. And this is primarily because PPPs or public-private partnerships have been things that have been have been partnerships that have been explored and people have gotten excited about them over the past two or three decades. Uh, but what we are finding, and this is true for the GCF as well, so um, just to put it out there, the language and what economists call the objective function for the public side and the private side have been very, very different, which has meant that the two sides um, usually come from very different motivations, come with very different incentives, and uh, come with very different institutional structures, therefore. Mm. So um, what I think what I would like to refer to um, is a symbiotic ecosystem. And again, this is a phrase that has been used by Mariana Mazzucato very effectively, which is probably, I think, the next generation of thinking that we need to espouse, which is to say that, uh, which is to recognize that the public side and the private side um, think about investments in very different ways. Um, it's to embrace this very different paradigms that the two sides um, are interested in and are keen to achieve, but to also recognize that, look, there is a possibility for those two sides to work in tandem with each other. And this, the, the phrase symbiotic ecosystem, I think does this very nicely without imposing a single framework on both sides. Mm -hmm. 
And so what I mean by that is, so if you look at the examples, and these are pretty well known um, in this space, if you look at the example of Apple or Siri or the algorithms that we use for Google, um, what we have seen and um, in the United States, but I think we're also seeing that with solar energy, for example, from in Europe and particularly the way the Germans have really supported um, solar energy, um, is the fact that the public side can come in to invest in innovations that may or may not work. And it's clear that the market doesn't want to come in to invest in areas that are likely, more than likely to fail at the beginning, right? And so what we have seen with a lot of these innovations, whether it's related to internet technologies, search technologies, renewable energies, et cetera, is that governments, basically have the ability to take on far greater risk, at least at the, when technologies and innovations are very nascent. But once they are able to show some potential and are able to indicate that, yes, there is a possibility for them to solve problems in ways that may also be monetarily effective, the private side may come in. And we saw that, like I said, with um, search engines, with Google, with Siri, with um, the Apple technologies, et cetera, that were essentially supported by DARPA within, mm-hmm. um, within the United States and also for solar energy within the public agencies in Germany. It's after that that the private agencies then come in or private organizations um, um, come in then to support them up, to help scale it up and to market them so that these become technologies that are user-friendly. In that sense, these are not, you know, conjoint pro- projects right from the beginning. So it's not as if the public and the private sector are working together right from the beginning. It's almost uh, investments taking place in tandem. And once there is proof of concept at the early stages that the private sector will come in. And that's why I like this phrase of uh, a symbiotic ecosystem where um, you're not essentially tied together unless you can see your own objective function, um, your own motivations being um, dealt with um, for each one of the investment types that gets taken care of. Sure, sure. And that's a... So it's it's a moment in time, Joe. We're we're facing also where, as you as you're saying, businesses have been compelled or have found opportunities to do things uh, on the heels of or on the tailwind of uh, some upfront investments. It's also a moment I'd, I'd argue that it's pretty popular to be involved in some, especially climate conscious uh, business opportunities or investments, right? And I'm curious. Uh, Sort of from your perspective and where you sit, when you when you see so many businesses entering into um, business lines or or new opportunities that that look really good, um, you know how how are we as the public as we're as we're looking and voting with our with our money and with our allegiances, how, how do we look at companies and and really be sure that the companies are are doing things that will have an impact and aren't just meant to be optically pleasing to the public? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question again, Trip. So yes, increasingly companies are coming into what seems like climate spaces. But um, while I'm very sanguine and very optimistic that agencies like the Green Climate Fund, but also several others in the multilateral space can do a lot, um, 
and I'm also very optimistic that governments are doing a lot. I do think that as companies are coming into this space, we need to be a little bit more careful about how we attribute um, so you know actions that are that are socially or climatically responsible to companies. And I, I'm I'm not being as cynic as I say that. It's just that the metric um, that we tend to use when we are looking at companies tend to be very different from. Uh, when we are looking at multilateral organizations where the objective mm. function is clearly very different. And what I'm alluding to is this very large emerging and now somewhat more mature sector, which is called the ESG sector the, or the environment, social and governance sector and ESG investments. So there's been a lot of talk. If you look at newspapers, um, if you just look at even South Korea, the ESG space or so the ESG investment space has been, I think at last um, reading or last year, um, I, I saw that it was equivalent to approximately 5 trillion won, which is, if I'm not wrong, approximately $5 billion. So just in mm-hmm. South Korea, that's yeah. the space for ESG-related investments. The ADB counts, counts the um, um, ESG investment space uh, to be equivalent to $23 trillion. These are huge mm-hmm. spaces. But as I, as, as I recognize that these are big spaces, I'm, I, I think it is important to be cautious as well because we must recognize that you know, investment and investment pathways are going to be path dependent. And unless we course correct this now, there is the danger that we'll go into a space where we just um, we aren't doing everything that we possibly could to think about climate or about the environment. So let me speak very quickly then about um, the space and what you referred to as um, you know, companies investing in climate impact. I think um, we've been ambitious and, um, on that side. Companies have come in and, um, and uh, you know, private equity funds have come into spaces of ESG and have also, at least in the in the newspaper and in the media have spoken about how they are getting directors to alter their own investment strategies. The part that I'm concerned about is that uh, when we ask companies uh, to invest in climatically responsible spaces, we're not actually counting climate responsible action or investments in the way that we should be. And this leads to a problem called impact washing. Mm. So what happens is that uh, companies will, so just to give you an example, if a company comes in and says that, look, we are going to invest in bioefficient fuels or even efficient lamps, compact fluorescent lamps, for example, uh, companies will usually measure this by saying, well, these are the number of units of lamps that we sold in the market. But that doesn't lead necessarily to an impact on climate, primarily because it ignores what are called scale effects or income effects, which means that at the household level, people may be adopting, say, compact fluorescent lamps and reducing their um, expenditures on just um, on generating one unit of energy uh, or one unit of lighting lumens, probably from that lamp. But because their income has been freed up, they could be consuming a lot more energy at the level of the household. So if you are then going to 
if you are then going to uh, claim as a company that you have reduced or mitigated the impact on climate, um, you'd be wrong because the scale effect or the income effect of that investment has been overall to increase the amount of energy consumed by the household. And what I'm arguing for, and it's a paper that we're actually bringing out very shortly, which will be published in the global uh, in the handbook of global impact investing later this year, is what we're arguing for is that it's really important for metrics to come out where companies and private investors recognize that there are going to be these primary and secondary effects, which may be caused because, say, price declines, but also income effects and scale effects that may be actually leading to far greater energy consumption than, than um, as a consequence of exactly those energy efficient investments that companies need to account for before they can claim for themselves that climate-related investments have, tr have truly reduced or mitigated uh, climate change. So impact washing remains a big concern for me. It is something that I, um, I think that larger agencies and organization, uh, organizations need to recognize. And I think it's also a space where multilateral organizations can show leadership because they can look at a far greater part of the world. And I don't, again, mean this in a, in a, in a, in a cynical way, but it is part of the mandate to look at a at a global good being generated rather than looking at just um, a single stream of profits being generated for companies. So I think this, um, this is something that I'm really keen that we should be thinking about far more in the private space than we are currently. That's, that's wonderful, Joe. And I, I, I don't wanna put you on the spot and ask or expect you to be able to share with us the magic metric <laughs> that, would, that would give clarity to efforts and, and give us the answer. But I am curious if, you know, in your role in particular, with a focus on evaluation and measurement, um, especially in something that is so massive and, and in a lot of instances so abstract as climate change, the, the challenges around measuring impact, especially around an investment, can be particularly staggering. And so I'm curious if, if how, how you approach that concept of impact for investments when it's very difficult to measure or especially when that impact might be really targeting species or, or ecosystems that we can't even consult, right? Um, yeah. Share with us a little bit about how, how you think through or, or how we might be more pointed in how we evaluate the, the impact of some of those investments. Thanks, Trip. So I actually, um, Again, I, I'm far more optimistic about this than possibly many out there. First, I think that the, that the advancements that we have made as human beings in measurement are far outstrip, I think, our own imagination, say, at the beginning of the century. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the century, just to give you one example, we didn't know how germ theory worked. We, um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, how... Uh, how pathways worked between, say, uh, uh, cholera and human beings getting afflicted by it, etc. It was largely thought that this was through miasma or bad air, and it was all um, sort of thought that you know, that we, well, we didn't know germs and we didn't know how the body worked. We have 
literally in the span of less than 100 years come to a point where we know exactly where viruses can um, afflict us, how they work, which pathways within such a complex humans, um, human body space they affect and how they, um, we get to see symptoms and how those can be cured. If you therefore then take that analogy um, further, what I'm arguing for is that, look, as soon as we see this as a problem, we're going to find the solutions. So vernier caliper, you know, we need a different kind of a vernier caliper or a different kind of a measurement system if we really think that we want to understand the impact on species, on ecosystems, etc. And this is not magical. There is already thinking, and we are again bringing out another paper on understanding evaluation in the context of complexity. How, given that, you know, different systems, physical, economic, financial, social, anthropological, um, environmental um, uh, systems interact together, can we understand causal pathways and can we understand the strength of those causal pathways? So when we are already embarking on this journey of trying to understand and un, uh, and parse essentially um, how changes occur in fairly complex systems, I don't think it's a far cry for us to think about measuring the strength of these changes and the impacts that these changes are going to make on different physical, economic, financial, and bio, biological systems. Um, uh, I think, again, using the medical analogy, we have not just just, you know, if you look at Ghost Map, which is, by the way, one of my favorite books, um, we understood how cholera occurred uh, because we, we ended up using what is the equivalent of a randomized control trial. Fast forward now to the 21st century, through randomized control trials, we have understood um, within complex human systems and uh, biological systems as to how, uh, how medicines work. And again, the human body is could be a fractal image of, you know, essentially the larger universe, um, sure. given how complex it is just within us. So if we can try um, and if we feel that this is a moral imperative for us, um, we are going to be able to develop those systems where we can understand and measure the impact of each one of our investments on the things that we care about. I think the magical thing for us to recognize is that we need to care about it first. Need is going to lead to the development of exactly these metrics as well as the systems and both the physical measurement technologies that we need so, so that we can understand the impact. My last thought on this is that um, I can, if you gave me, for example, um, basic systems, um, we could we can already within the measurement technology system, we can already think about um, how to measure impact um, at first um, at first levels. So not to you know not to talk about impacts say over thirty years or over centuries, but we can definitely already start to measure impact at um, um, at first level. That is, who's the immediate being whether human or otherwise that is being impacted and how and how much is that impact. And that's already possible within, uh, within the, our current technologies. The important thing will be to understand how that, how that 
statistic system measuring across years and across decades and then across centuries. Well, you're making my um, my day a little bit brighter to know that oh, we are maybe yeah. further along than I had than I had thought. I, and I'd love to bring us back to you. You mentioned at the beginning, and and we you know we've been operating or talking in the last few minutes at a pretty high altitude. I'd love to talk a little bit more about. The, the people and the places and the things that are impacted. You know, this is a, climate change is a, is a global abstract, uh, for a lot of people, abstract concept. We, we do know though, or have been able to model out where some of the impacts, negative impacts of climate change are going to be felt most immediately. And do you have any examples you, you're, you'd like to share or you can share uh, related to how GCF is working with communities or working with areas to to work or promote adapt adaptation or mitigation are there specific projects that get you excited or that you'd like to share with the audience absolutely thanks for bringing that up trip so i think the first area that um i'm quite excited that the gcf is working in is um the small island developing states um and the reason i'm excited is that you know by definition um island states are small have small populations and usually get neglected a lot primarily because you can't see show big impacts and this has been true also for the international system that small island states have gotten neglected but what we are seeing with the green climate fund is that whether it's vanuatu in the pacific and the federated states of micronesia in the pacific or um, if you come into the Indian Ocean, um, uh, or even if you go to, into the Caribbean, so um, if you look at Antigua and Barbuda uh, and Barbados, for example, the GCF is working with island states to then ensure that people who are going to be first impacted by sea level rise are um, given the means to adapt in ways that they see most appropriate but also providing them with advice on technology and possibilities so that they can um, they can expand if they are wanting to their own horizons on thinking so in Vanuatu for example there are entire systems that are being set up for climate information services because as you may have read in the news just this year Vanuatu um, has been impacted by uh, typhoons and hurricanes but climate information services can provide exactly the sort of forewarning that can help people adapt migrate um, mobilize themselves into spaces that are far more uh, safe mm-hmm. So um, in the small island developing states, I think is one area that I'm especially proud that the GCF is working. I think the second area that I'm really excited about is um, where um, biodiverse systems come um, uh, and interact with human systems. So Madagascar. Madagascar is my favorite example. And I also had the opportunity to be in Madagascar two years ago and see with my own eyes as to how people were working with forest systems and um, with um, with uh, the entire diversity of uh, the animal systems within these forests uh, to then ensure that they were adapting while um, adapting not just themselves as human beings, but also getting forest systems to be far more resilient to what was an inevitable change in uh, living uh, arrangements, 
but also pressures of population increase as well as uh, climatic impact that they were going to be feeling. And these translate into then also changing the sociological systems that uh, people within Madagascar are organizing themselves into. So there are communities that are being set up that can work very closely with people who are dependent on forests, um, for both for the livelihoods, but also to ensure that these forests are staying in place and people are able to ensure their uh, their resilience and strength as they work along and um, improve their own livelihoods in the face of climate change. I think the third example, and I'm going to stop there, is really um, uh, in terms of renewable energy technologies. And I, you know, I love the fact that G. CF has the mandate to come in and take, in, take on first losses. So with renewable energies, there is, of course, a pretty large part of the renewable energy technology uh, uh, possibility system where, where these technologies are market mature. So that means the GCF need not come in uh, because the markets themselves are private or the private sector is pretty much ready for these technology systems. But there are other far more nascent technologies that can be and should be exploited. So geothermal is one of them. And I was in, um, I was in um, Philippines earlier and uh, the GCF is working with the World Bank then to help explore geothermal systems that can be a huge source of energy for the island people there. And these are very populous island nations, as you know. So, uh, and, but the exploration of these, um, of these sources of energy require a huge amount of risk-taking as well as upfront investments that you know, a lot of countries may not be willing to take themselves. But the GCF can and is coming in on that side. Um, I think, uh, so uh, with renewable energies also getting entire communities and countries to think in different ways. And this is one of the more frontier areas that GCF is just starting to think about, but also my office is starting to think about, which is behavioral science. How do you get people to change action, even though they know that it is the right thing to do? We all know that inertia basically will take over in most cases and people don't like to change the way they act changing choice architectures so that people are able to realize their own dreams about how they should be acting um, is one area that the GCF is slowly coming into and that I'm really quite sanguine and optimistic about as well. Those are all tremendous. And I, I'm sorry we don't have three hours to talk about the full list of things because I, I, I know there's a rich collection to draw from. I, I will include for the audience a link to the site so that they can read through other examples, but thanks for sharing those. Joe, we have a couple more questions. You've been incredibly generous with your time and I wanna be sure to, to honor that. So I will make these last few crisp, but I would love before we let you go to get your opinion on, again, climate change being such a large scale challenge confronting the planet. It can be difficult to think as an individual, the things that, that a person can do to help make a positive difference or help mitigate the change. Is there anything you would recommend to that person or to the listener who wants to do something positive and isn't quite sure where to start? Um, well, 
I think uh, people are already sort of slowly moving onto those pathways where they are learning to, for example, use bicycles. And, you know, uh, with COVID, we've reduced our um, international flights, et cetera. I think the one thing, um, it, it's a little bit more nebulous than I think you would have liked me to talk about, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is that um, I think it's important to visualize, visualize where we want to be. And uh, what I'm what I'm trying to say in a fairly circuitous way is that um, unfortunately we've come, we've all seen climate change as this boring, oh no, not another problem for us to deal with um, problem. Um, I think it's really important and time for us to think about our, the limitations of our own imaginations and go into spaces and think excitedly about uh not just behavioral science, which is a new and exciting space that is coming forward, but also to think about how our own art, our own, um, our own history is changing as a consequence of climate change. And to realize that there are so many other possible futures. You know, there's a wonderful book that I'm reading, which is called Nature's Mutiny, which is written by Philip Blom. Um, and it examines as to how the Little Ice Age, which was in the 16th century, changed the way art, architecture, design, people's eating habits, um, and really history and wars just changed dramatically, primarily because there were changes in our weather and our climate systems that changed the realities of a lot of empires and um, and uh, imperial systems during the time. I definitely encourage your listeners to look far more into history um, as well as into fiction to really realize the possibilities that exist and get ourselves far more excited about what we can do with climate and climate change and adapting to it and mitigating to it and realizing the possibilities of technology rather than seeing it as an yet another boring problem that you know, perhaps someone else will deal with. That's wonderful. I, I think I'd love to mention too. I, I've heard I've heard people reference, and I've come to agree. There, there can be a certain feeling of inertia or inevitability to how markets operate, right, or how business incentives are structured. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning or reminding people that the systems are are they were designed or they evolved from people, and it's not as if Markets can't be uh, influenced or, or adapt to different laws and regulations that are passed. So, there. I think you're, to your point, there are a number of things that um, that are within the realm of possibility that we may not even realize. Um, um, yeah, please. Sorry, just to say that I, I think for the for the listeners among um, for your listeners, the ones who especially see themselves as ideas people and innovators, I think this is a really rich space. Because you can innovate, you know, on the choice architecture side, you can innovate on the technology side, you can innovate on the behavior side. And it's really there for everyone to grasp and to change. Wonderful, wonderful. I'd love to, to close with, with one more, Joe, on a little bit of a, 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 on an optimistic note. There are manifold challenges facing us, us, but I'd love to hear what one reason you have to be hopeful in our in our effort against climate change. And then if you are able to, to add to that, a resource that you'd recommend um, people explore if they're cur curious and eager to learn more. 
I think, um, yeah, uh, I, I think the, I, I'm going to take the liberty of mentioning more than one resource very quickly. Uh, That's allowable. That's allowable. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, and I can, of course, refer to uh, refer your listeners to a whole lot of papers, etc. But I think what is truly exciting me now, and it's in keeping with what I um, said um, a little bit earlier, which is that a lot more um, stories and very exciting fiction is coming into space that I do want to draw your listeners to pay attention to, because at least with me, it has made me far more excited about um, the topic and the possibilities that are. So, um, like I said, there's uh, Nature's Mutiny, which is by Philip Blum. Uh, but so I'm also reading uh, Amitav Ghosh, which is The Great Derangement, where he talks essentially about, um, and he's a fiction writer otherwise, but he talks about how climate change is uh, making a difference to, in developing countries and especially talks about the Sundarbans and uh, sea level rise there, but also how that's making a difference to people. But another book that I just recently picked up is by Ian McEwen, um, which is called Solar. And it's a funny picaresque sort of novel, which, is, uh, which has as its background uh, uh, this entire question of climate change and how we deal with new technologies. And the protagonist is this Nobel Prize winner in um, physics, I, I think, who is um, wanting to think about these issues. But of course, he's got a lot of stuff that's going on, which is very interesting in the foreground. Uh, uh, in his own personal life, but I think what it what it does for me it 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 makes it real this idea that look um, climate change and uh, the possibilities that exist are so exciting. Um, we only just need to open our eyes and hearts and minds to thinking about our own innovative selves, um, whether like I said in technology, but also in writing, how we think about the world at present. Yeah, very important to change the way we are writing about it um, if we are to think about climate change. I'm going to end with uh, my last um, anecdote here, which is, you know, as I, as I said at the beginning, we cycled across South Korea and uh, we saw um, in their own small way, um, the people of South Korea really investing in wetlands. So this is the one reason that I have to be hopeful. South Korea as a country has come out of, you know, just really, really deep poverty in a matter of 25 years. But what you're seeing now is a country that is not just excited about innovation and invention, but is paying so much attention to the environment, to climate, to wetlands, to biodiversity, to um, to technology, that it makes me hugely hopeful that if a country this size and with such little land can pay attention to climate and to the environment, then definitely the whole world can. It's a beautiful way to end and an inspirational place to, for us all to leave and go forth from. Joe, this has been such an absolute treat. Thank you for joining. And, and I, I look forward to seeing what GCF and you do in the coming months and years. Thanks very much for having me, Trip. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Check the show notes for links and information mentioned in the episode. And explore the other episodes in this season to learn more on this topic. Before we go, subscribe to our show to get new episodes as soon as they come online. And please rate us on whatever podcast app you use. 
That helps other people discover the show as well. We'd be excited to hear from you. Send us a mail at revolvepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>